In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. We are now in the process of realizing that there's enough information to give us a theory that there are intelligent species with technological advances over us living elsewhere, interdimensionally or otherwise, that are coming and, to put it in plain language, interfering with our lives, for better or worse. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Hey, did you know there's a test you can take that can help determine whether you've been abducted by extraterrestrials? The American Personality Inventory is a test that was co-developed by Ted Davis, Bud Hopkins, and Don Dondere to assess the validity of a report that someone has been abducted by ETs. It consists of 65 true false questions and can be completed in about 10 minutes uh, either on paper or on a digital device. He is the author of UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abductions, A Scientist Looks at the Evidence. Don, how are you? 
Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. My word, 15 years old and you're attending the University of Chicago. You were a gifted child. Well, there are a lot of us, and it's not rare. Actually, it wasn't at the time. A lot of schools allowed early entrance to quit or skip the last two years of high school. In my case, and in a lot of Americans' case at the time, I, I am an American, a dual national, it was to basically get an education in before the draft got you. This was 1952. The Korean War was on. American boys were being drafted left and right. And some people in education thought kids should get a chance to get an education before they got into the Army. By the time you were 18, you had a B.A. and a Bachelor of Science in Biological Psychology by the time you were 21. What is Biological Psychology? Well, it's got a different name now. It's called Physiological Psychology or Neuropsychology. It's the study of the human brain and the human organs connected to the brain that make us walk, talk, think, and behave. And so it's basically the biological origins of behavior. And that's what I've been studying one way or another for most of my life. Ah, fascinating. So how then did you come to co-develop this American personality inventory? How, how did that happen? Well, it's a long story. I could probably spend an hour telling you, and I'm sure you don't want to hear the details. But here's the basic outline. I've been interested in the subject of UFOs professionally since about 1965, which is quite a while now. I realized as a psychologist specializing in human vision and human memory that the people who were reporting UFOs weren't all crazy, weren't all deluded, weren't all under the influence, but were reporting what they absolutely recalled and remembered well. And the reports were consistent. I'm a professional scientist. This is a subject that most professional scientists don't take up, but I did with my professional training and my statistical ability and what have you. And from that day, I was in contact with other people in the field, including the well-known uh, abduction researcher, Bud Hopkins, who is an American painter living in New York, and his friend and associate, Ted Davis, who's a social worker and well-skilled in the same kinds of things that I am, namely dealing with people, getting them to express their personalities on paper and pencil tests, and what have you. So what happened was that Bud and Ted, through a long, uh, complicated history of research, wanted to get to the bottom of who was abducted and who wasn't. So they put together a 608-question true-false test that they thought would get to the heart of the abduction experience. That's a lot of questions. They also only had people that they thought had been abducted because Ted and Bud and various other researchers like David Jacobs in Philadelphia and others had made a very careful study of people whose stories hung together, were consistent, were credible, and could be believed. They gave this test to those 70-odd people. Then they asked me to cooperate because they knew I was interested in this field in finding other people who weren't abducted, so that I could give the test to two other groups of people. And here's the story. One group were people who were around McGill, where I spent my academic career, and had no connection with the abduction or UFO field whatsoever. They were just adults who were interested in helping us develop what we call the personality test. But they didn't know we were studying UFOs or abductions. They just thought they were being helpful to a guy in the psychology department because he wanted to develop a new test with an innocuous name. 
American personnel in inventory. Since we're in Canada, we'll take America to mean North America, but you get the idea. It doesn't sure. give anything away. Right. Then we got another group of people who, as is the case with most North Americans, knew pretty much what abductions were about because they'd seen movies, uh, they'd seen the day the Earth stood still, they knew about aliens, they knew about UFOs, they knew about uh, people being snatched, at least in stories. And we asked them to beat the test, to actually fake it. We had no reason to think any of them were real abductees, but we asked them to take the test and score it as well as they could to pretend that they'd been abducted. Now we've got three groups of people. One group, quote, real, unquote, abductees, studied by Bud Hopkins, Ted Davis, and other people. Another group of what we call in the trade, controls. Normal people off the street, more or less, who just cooperated with us to take a test. And the third group were fakers, people we wanted to beat the test, pretend to be abductees. And what happened, to make a long story short, and it's been published, and nobody in your audience will want the de details, we were able to, I was able to use statistical methods, very standard methods, to demonstrate complete separation among those three groups based on 65 of those 608 questions. So this boils down to telling you that what we've got is a short test that will make us reasonably certain if somebody comes with an abduction story, whether they made it up deliberately in order to fool us, whether it really happened to them, or whether it might have happened to them, but we're not really certain. So we can have a sort of probability statement. This person, this person we think is 90% certainly an abductee. This person is 0% certain an abductee. And that's what we did. It's a little test. It doesn't end the story, but it certainly helps to make it a little clearer. Now, those people that you chose for the control group or the simulator group, how are they vetted? Because... You know, based on what we know now from that poll that was, uh, that, that Roper poll that I believe Dr. Jacobs and I believe Bud Hopkins was involved in designing. I mean, you know, the number of people that are abducted, it's, it's potentially, I mean, it's, the numbers are staggering. How do you vet the control and, and simulator to make sure that there may be people in those groups they don't even know they've been abducted? That's a very good point and I can't answer it. I can't get around that problem. We asked them questions that would indicate whether they had or thought they had been, and the ones who were in the control group said no. But you could always say, and that's an absolutely good point, there may be people hidden in those groups who didn't know themselves that they'd been abducted because none of these symptoms, if you want to put them, call them that, came out. But what usually happens is this. You're right, and you got that right on. The Roper poll, which was done in about 1991, came up with a figure of, Something like 37 million Americans, because the poll was limited to the U.S., uh, were thought to have been abducted. That seemed like an absurdly large number, but I got into this argument at the very beginning, and now you're asking me to tell my story because I went to the, the convention at MIT in 1992 when this Roper poll result was presented. And I stood up, being a smart aleck, and said, all very well, Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis, but we need to do more work. And here's an outline of some other things we should do to follow up on this to see if it's real. And so they got back to me and said, yeah, we've developed this test. Do you want to help us uh, verify it? So this is a real case of cooperation. And that's the way things should work in science. Somebody makes a claim, like 37 million Americans have been abducted. Somebody else stands back and says a little skeptically, well, how can you be sure? They came back and said, well, we made a test after the fact. 
We think this might satisfy you. They sent me the test. I found these other groups of people. We gave all these people, the ones they thought were abductees, the ones I thought were controlled, and the ones I thought were fakers to test, and were able to separate them. But you're absolutely right. There's no guarantee that every person in the control group was not an abductee. There's also no guarantee that everybody in the abduction group was an abductee. You're taking the word of experts for that, the experts being David Jacobs, Bud Hopkins, Ted Davis, and on my side, the expert, me, and the students who work with me, that these people, as far as we could tell by questioning, did not have this experience. But you're right with human experience. As any psychologist knows, it's an iffy thing to be certain what's happened and what's not happened. And you now and I know that yes. people are not completely consistent in what they remember about themselves, what they tell other people about themselves, uh, what they forget from time to time and remember again. It's a complicated business dealing with people. I wish it weren't, but it is. What are some of the questions, the more pertinent questions on this test, Don? That would be giving it away in advance. And I don't actually have the test in front of me. I'll give you a sense of them, because I can certainly do that. Yes. Um, here's one. I'm paraphrasing it. I, I feel like I'm, when I'm swimming, I'm feeling free and comfortable in the water. And, and, and since that's a true-false question. All of these are true-false questions. And right. the idea is to find out what aspects of human experience make you uncomfortable or comfortable. Uh, I see a baby with dark eyes and they get uneasy. Well, that isn't an actual question, but you get the sense that we're closing in without actually ever using the word abduction on experiences that people have that are related to an abduction phenomenon and that if they react the way most abductees seem to react, will make them uncomfortable. Now, here's something you should know. <clears throat> People that, that, that common, and this is perfectly common knowledge in the trade, so to speak, if you have a close encounter with a UFO, that is, if you've been driving it along the road in your car, and you see this bright light over the top of the car, and you look up, and there's something hovering over the car, and then uh, a few minutes pass, or you think a few minutes pass, and you end up, finding yourself five miles down the road and the bright light has gone away, you've had what's called missing time and you've had a close encounter. And those right. are two signs that you might very well have been abducted because the UFO will have stopped the car, made you stop the car, dragged you out either through the windshield because they have control over physical things that we don't have, or through a door, taken you into the UFO, maybe zoomed off a ways, done a lot of probing, put you back down again, set you in the car, and set you going again. That's a classic abduction experience. You may not remember it, but you'll remember anxieties related to it, like feeling uncomfortable on dark roads at night or uh, feeling uncomfortable around strange lights that you can't explain. All of this is pretty commonsensical, but we've put it into 65 questions that we find enable us to separate people we are pretty darn sure have been abducted from people we are pretty darn sure haven't and people who were, we asked to fake the test. So that's how we do it, and it's all very empirical. There's no, no hard scientist that say, well, give me your litmus test, or give me your, um, your drug test for this. And I can't, because we don't have any. All we have is personality questionnaires. What does this person think about this or that experience? And so we're in the realm of psychology here, not biological science, because there's no, as of yet, biological test to 
tell whether somebody has been abducted. Right, right. Um, what is the score one would get that would put you in a very high probability range oh, that you've been abducted? It's, it's even more complicated than that. It's not the number of correct questions. It's the pattern of questions that you get correct. Or get, I'm sorry, the pattern of questions that you answer true compared to the pattern of questions that are answered true by people who are either controls or fakers. And to explain this, I'd have to explain what uh, multidimensional analysis of covariance means. And I don't think we want to take that up <laughs> in the next 35 minutes. No, not without a whiteboard. It's, 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 it's jargon, but it's trade jargon. And uh, in order to understand it, you'd have to have gone through an undergraduate statistics course at the very least. So it was designed this way in order to... I mean, why is it so complicated, I guess, is what well, I'm asking. Because can we take somebody's word for the fact that they've been abducted? No, clearly okay. not. That, that's why. So we have people who want to fake it, want to make fools of us by you know, trying to persuade us that they've been abducted and then laughing in, at us in public. So that's not good. We want to separate that kind of people, the fakers, from people whose experience suggests they have been abducted. And it will get back to finding out whether that Roper poll number of some 37 million Americans is right. I thought it was high at the first, and I said so. And that's why I tried to uh, suggest a proposal to study it further. And then Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis got back to me and asked me to cooperate, which I was very grateful. So all this does is push the story a little bit forward. The reason we want a test like this is to add one more degree of, of certainty in a very uncertain area. We're not dealing with certainties here. You get out into the world, and if you ask 90% of the social scientists in the university, or say even 90% of the psychologists in practice, are people being abducted by aliens? You know what they'll say. I know as well. Are you crazy? Is that guy crazy? How can he say that? We're dealing with a very controversial and, of course, very potentially uh, upsetting process. If it's right, then um, I won't use language inappropriate for the radio. We have something to think about, put it that way. Mm. If I'm wrong, well, then, I, then I'm, just, I'm just as big a fool as the next guy. Is there, a, is there a place that we can go to take the test? Is it available online, for example, and are you... Are you are you seeking um, you know currently people to take this test and are you are you tabulating it constantly the results? This is the way it's done. The test was originally given to these samples of people, and that work was published oh many years ago now about oh, oh about twenty thirteen I think. And since then, the Mutual UFO Network, the organization sponsoring this conference in in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, at the end of the month, has put this test together with the other tests on its own website so that people who think they've been abducted can contact MUFON through its website and then contact a group in MUFON called the Experiencer Research Team. And that's a group of researchers, including myself, interested in following up on the abduction phenomenon. And the leader of that group is a woman named Kathleen Martin, and she has people who fill out a first questionnaire in great detail about their experiences, and she thinks it would be useful to give them the test, she'll ask them to take this test. She makes it available to them online. And that's how it's available now. If you, if you or any of your listeners 
have had an experience that makes you think you might have been abducted, and I've just described one of the kinds of things, that is the close encounter with a UFO or a luminous a light over your car, light outside your bedroom window, some missing time where you don't know what happened, you're in a state of confusion. That's the kind of experience that might go with a psychological disturbance, but also on the basis of a lot of evidence, might also go with what we call an abduction experience. And you can contact MUFON through the website and report a UFO or report a UFO experience. And when you fill out the form on the website, it will be seen by one of the people in this research group. And if they think it's an appropriate use of the test, they'll get back to you. So that's where it's available now. Terrific. You know, there's this old saying that seeing is believing, except it seems when it comes to UFOs. Seeing is not believing. Uh, even when police officers uh, see UFOs and when Navy pilots see UFOs, why is it that in, in mainstream science, for example, I mean, you're a psychologist or you're, you're in that field. You tell me why most scientists and governments reject or ignore UFO evidence even when it's right under their nose. Psychologists have been working on this problem and have some good answers. The best answer is that it frightens the heck out of them. And when something frightens you and you don't have to face it, you look for excuses not to. So, as you said, UFOs don't hover over uh, Bloor and Young on a regular basis. They don't hover over St. Catherine and Peel in Montreal on a regular basis. The people who see them see them in out-of-the-way places. The people who have abduction experiences have them out in cottage country, not on, um, basically, as I said, not on Young and Bloor. And so you don't get a widespread, great public awareness of this phenomenon, which means that the people who are in a position to tell you how the world runs, that is, the scientists whose profession is to say what is what, don't have to deal with this every day. And because nobody understands it, that is, I can't tell you how a UFO works, and I can't tell you what the aliens in them want, but I can tell you they're here. The guys and girls whose business it is to explain the world don't want to deal with it. It makes them very uncomfortable. And they don't have to deal with it. And here's why. Uh, there's no theory to explain it. A very famous philosopher of scientist named uh, um, Donald Kuhn, K-U-H-N, in 1962 published a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. In it, he explained that modern scientists don't work with evidence. They work with theories. And the only evidence they're interested in is evidence that is about a theory. Now, they may disagree with a theory, and they'll want evidence to disprove it, or they may agree with a theory or have one of their own and want evidence to develop it, but they have to work within a context of what we call theory. Now, you ask any scientist on the street, get one on your show, ask him to explain how a UFO works and where it comes from and how it gets here, that person will end up with his or her mouth hanging open because they don't know. And that makes the whole subject untouchable for science. Unless there's a theory, unless there's a government willing to sponsor research on that theory, there's no credit for it in the scientific game, 
And the scientific game, as you know, is played in universities, in private research labs, and occasionally by the eccentric individual in his own basement, but that's pretty rare. So there's no scientific establishment interested in studying UFOs. First of all, it's a frightening topic. If you think about being under surveillance by a technologically superior bunch of beings who aren't necessarily nicer than we are, but who have a, a lot more control over our environment than we do, then you have some things to worry about. I have some things to worry about. But the scientific profession would rather not worry and hasn't had to worry. That's why they shrug their shoulders and laugh at people interested in the subject. Where is the intellectual curiosity? I mean, I, I, never. let's put scientists aside for a moment. What about journalists? Where is... Where is intellectual curiosity, which should be the primary f- driving force behind, okay, so they don't understand it, they're afraid of it, but still, that, in- that intellectual curiosity should override that. There's one very good journalist whose intellectual curiosity certainly was up to that standard. Her name is Leslie Kane. Yes, she that's and true. And the reporters wrote a front-page article in the New York Times on December 16, 2017, bringing to the public's attention... The words of Luis Elizondo, the man who ran a Pentagon UFO research program for many years, finally retired or quit and went public with the fact that the government is actually studying them. So there are journalists who took this up, and more credit to them. There was another front-page op-ed piece in the Washington Post in March 2018 by another man named Christopher Mellon, who was the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense somewhere down the bureaucratic chain, who was responsible for that program. And he also wrote about it, saying, I ran this program, or I was responsible for it. I want people to know that it existed, and I want the government to do more about it. So some journalists are taking the business seriously. It's been rare to have them do that, though. And I agree with you. It's just uncomfortable. Look, do you want to be told that uh, on a daily or weekly basis there's a, a, a technologically superior race of critters with big machines that can outfly and outmaneuver our own aircraft, who can reconnoiter our cities, uh, take us up and study us at will, it's not a very attractive prospect. And I think it has two, that has two, two effects. One, it frightens people out of being interested if they don't have to be. And secondly, it certainly uh, provide, provokes defense mechanisms. And the easiest defense is the guys who are interested are crazy. They, they have no standard in society. They're just among the loonies, pardon me, and they don't deserve to be taken seriously. Why are you different? You're a scientist. Why are you different? Why am I different? Here's one reason, and I, I, this is because in my entire academic career, except for the first five years, I had that marvelous privilege called tenure. Now, you know that tenure means that a university professor who achieves it cannot be fired for doing his or her job. He, he or she can be fired if they don't teach, don't show up, uh, behave badly towards students, or do other things that are out of the realm of acceptable stuff. But if that scientist or that philosopher or that humanist or that English professor publishes a paper that people disagree with, he cannot or she cannot be fired for doing it. It means academic freedom for the academic. And I took advantage of it. And uh, it's a great privilege. Very few of us have that privilege. 
to risk expressing our opinion and not lose our income. And that gives you a great deal of freedom, and I've always appreciated that. And I've appreciated the university, namely McGill, and the university system, which is our North American system, that gives us that privilege. But I'm guessing, you know, tenure aside, you still suffered the slings and arrows of uh, ridicule and so forth. I have a pretty thick skin, put it that way. Also, a reasonable amount of self-confidence. And so that didn't bother me. I actually was an excellent researcher. You see, a lot of my work had nothing to do with UFOs. I published many papers and uh, several textbooks, as well as the work I've done on UFOs. So I had a strong professional career, as well as my interest in UFOs. As a matter of fact, I was also a university administrator, running an important program in the graduate faculty. So all of these things combined, and the university, I guess, uh, left me pretty much alone as far as that stuff is concerned, and I never felt, um, how shall I put it, threatened by my interest. In fact, it was publicized in the university internal newspaper and so forth and so on. I was either fortunate or just dumb one way or the other, and I managed <laughs> to keep my neck out without getting it cut off, but it Don, stay tuned. Uh, we'll uh, come back and pick this up on the other side. UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions. A scientist looks at the evidence. Don Donderry, Ph.D. Don Crosby Donderry, Ph.D. is with us, the author of UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abduction. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett or click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60 Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. How soon do you think we could see credit courses in ufology in post-secondary education? Or is that a pipe dream? Very pertinent question. Here's my situation. And it does reflect a certain amount of resistance in the academic community. Right now, Richard, I'm teaching a course in what's called the McGill Community for Lifelong Learning, which, as it sounds, is a program, a non-credit course program, for people who are at retirement age or have time on their hands and are interested in cultural events. I teach a course called UFOs, History and Reality. I've been teaching it for three semesters, uh, 16, 17, and 18, and I'll be teaching it again in the winter semester of 19. I've tried repeatedly to get the Faculty of Arts and Science to take on a credit course of the similar type, and I have run into an absolute brick wall. Uh, 
I almost don't get my emails returned, put it that way. Uh, there's, and I just told you that this is a highly charged topic for people who don't really feel comfortable dealing with it. I take a psychological position. I describe the evidence from a psychological point of view. I deal with the, and this I do for my retirees who enjoy the course, I have to say, and I enjoy teaching it. I take up the philosophy of science that I just briefly described to you, the problem of fitting this particular set of data into a scientific box, since there isn't any box for it. Uh, the whole business comes right up against the built-in resistance to dealing with a topic that is, one, uncomfortable, and second, has no strong theoretical base in modern science. We don't understand how they work. And the people in the Faculty of Arts and Science at McGill don't particularly want me to tell tell undergraduates that we've got a problem, put it plainly. So we've run into resistance there, and you, you've, you've hit the weak spot in the academic world as far as that's concerned. Not weak in that the, um, the continuing studies people were happy to give me a place to teach this course, and my continuing studies students like the course, and I enjoy teaching it. But the credit people, not so easy. Not even as an elective. I mean, I would imagine... Students would be lined up three deep around the around the corner to sign up for a, a, an elective course like that. Yes, but you're not running the Department of Psychology or the Department of History and <laughs> Philosophy of Science, and they their thinking is this: there's a crazy guy coming in from outside, a retired professor, who wants to take our best students away and and give them a diet of sensationalism, and there's nothing to it. That's their thought. I'm serious. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I've certainly explored it, and I've, I've made the best case I can, but it doesn't get me very far. That, it's kind what of you... funny to me because I teach the course, and I obviously do research in this area, as you're aware, and I have colleagues who are not in universities. The, this research is being funded privately. You may know that there is MUFON, this large private research organization, which I think the motto is something like the study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity, which I endorse completely. Mm-hmm. And more recently, a rock star named Jim DeYoung has Tom DeLong. Tom DeLong. to his own company called To The Stars Foundation. And what yes. he's trying to do is raise money from other people to finance a kind of private capital investment in studying the problem, which is fine. I can't see it returning any investments, but it's a way of people to put in money and get some credit for it on their tax forms, uh, more power to him. But this is all done privately. The next question you're going to ask is, what's the government doing? And the answer is, I don't know. Everybody in the trade, everyone in the UFO field, has his or her suspicions. And as I said, there were two whistleblowers at the turn of the year, one who was actually running the program and the other guy who was supervising it, uh, respectively Elizondo and Mellon, they talked about the small-scale UFO program in the Pentagon, which is running currently and has been running for about 10 or 12 years, as far as they were able to tell us. That may or may not be the only U.S. government involvement in the subject. And um, that's all I know. All the rest is rumor. But um, there's, there can't not be interest because the evidence is so strong. Not even not, not to the academic, but to the how shall I put it, the un, unprejudiced and open-minded observer. The evidence is strong.
and it has been for 40 years. This is not new. U- UFO community, if I can use that term, and I hate using those types of terms, but for shorthand, we'll call it the UFO community, who believes that extraterrestrials are not only technologically advanced, they're probably spiritually more advanced, and they look to them as some sort of savior for humanity. Uh, but increasingly, we have people like uh, David Jacobs, who see a far more menacing uh, um, uh, motivation on the part of the ETs. Uh, we, you know, Jacques Vallée, who, who talk about, who talks about this, you know, great deception, the deceivers. Um, what is, I mean, there's this huge schism in, in the, in ufology with those who, who see them as knights on white steeds and then those who see them as something very nefarious. Where do you fall, uh, in, 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 among these two camps? Very nefarious. Very mm. truly, we can talk about that. Sure, I'm not at all happy that there are critters who have superior technological abilities who go around picking us up, poking needles into us, giving us hybrid babies, and putting us back again. I don't think that's good. So, how do we wrap our heads around the fact that there are those who have very positive? Uh, experiences after an abduction, they uh, they see you know that they get the big screen treatment where they're shown Earth's future and uh, environmental degradation and so forth, which has always struck me as kind of a very new agey kind of a an experience. But uh, I mean, are they suffering Stockholm uh, uh, syndrome or what's going on there? Or are there two types of ETs? That's the question I can't answer. I don't know. Here's my take on it. They may, again, I'm well aware of the, of the accounts that you've just recited of people being shown these panoramas of earth in distress, uh, so forth and so on, as basically an admonition to go home and behave yourself, which is fine. If there are well-intentioned ETs doing that, that's very nice. On the other hand, there are ETs who take as much advantage of us as we take of the four-footed critters whom we consider we have domination over on this earth. And the example I use in my book is bears. If we're interested in what's going on in the bear world, we fly a helicopter over some bear, shoot a dart into it. When the bear drops over in a, in a faint, we go down and test it, put a chip under its skin, pick it up, maybe actually take it back to a lab before it wakes up, uh, probe and push around, bring the bear back to the woods, let it out, and the bear wakes up, scratches its head in puzzlement, wonders where it's been, and goes about its business. A lot of us who are abducted have the same experience. And by the way, as you also, I'm sure, know, many families report serial abductions. So it's obvious that ETs are interested in us over a generational basis. Now, why, I don't know. It's just that if I were a bear, I wouldn't want to be pushed around by people. And if I'm a person, I don't want myself or my friends or family or my community of six billion other humans to be pushed around by the ETs. I would rather us be on a footing of equality. Problem is, we're not, technically. And that makes the whole thing a little bit, uh, how shall I put it, tense. Right, but in, in, the, in the, situ- the scenario with the bear that you just cited, uh, obviously we have an interest or a desire to help preserve the habitat for the bear, to make sure the bears are healthy. So although it may be a heavy-handed way, obviously we can't communicate with the bears. 
so it, it, might it not be a sort of a similar scenario with extraterrestrials? They don't see us as advanced enough in order to communicate, uh, but yet they still have our best interests at heart. Well, you, maybe you're right. On the other hand, we also issue licenses to people with uh, 30 30 if you go out and shoot bears. So um, we bears, let's put it this way, with less respect than we treat ourselves. And I'm a little concerned that we're in the same position vis-a-vis ETs as bears are with respect to us. Yes. And I can't, uh, all I have is the evidence in front of me. Some people come back with visions of how the Earth should be improved from an abduction. Very good. Other people come back with pregnancies and give birth to hybrids on ET spaceships. And the hybrids then integrate into human society. With one advantage, they're telepathic. And this gives them a power that most of us don't have over each other. So there are all sorts of possible implications to this uh, interaction. I just don't consider it obviously um, friendly on the surface. What motives are, I don't know. I put the problem in the perspective that we put our dominion over this planet in, and I see that we're being treated as an inferior species by one that's technologically advanced, and I don't know what we can do about it, but I don't like it, put it plainly. And I don't think it's necessarily good for the human, human race. Well, your your colleague, Dr. Jacobs, certainly um, is concerned. My sense from, and I may be wrong about this, but my sense is he believes that the intention is essentially they, they're trying to raise an army they're trying through to a hybrid. Over in one fashion or another. Right. Yeah, right. Well, I agree. I, I agree with David. I, that's his strong interpretation about that. You're absolutely right. But he's got a lot of evidence to suggest that's what's going on. I, I have How does... to say, I don't know. I have a friend, a good friend, who's a novelist, who's just written a novel about UFOs. I won't tell you any more because that would be uh, jumping the gun on him. But he has the same uh, hope that you have. And he said very much, or he had, that you expressed, very much in the same way. Well, they're technologically superior, so I think they're probably morally superior. And that's what he said, and he may be right, and we've agreed to disagree about that, but it's certainly a hope, and I can't swear it's wrong, but the evidence I see suggests otherwise. That would be anyone's hope, but that's certainly not my reading of the situation. I mean, my reading of the situation is probably similar to yours, although as an Orthodox Christian, everything, my, this goes through my faith filter. And for me, and for this to square with the sort of the biblical narrative, I, I don't see them as extraterrestrial. I see them as interdimensional. And I, and I think what we're dealing with are either demonic or angelic uh, beings. Uh, that doesn't fly well at a MUFON uh, symposium, I can tell you that much. <laughs> well, you see, I don't know what that means. That's the problem. And I don't know where they come from either. I, can't, I, I have no better answer than you do. But right. my first impression is that they fly around in machines, and the machines and other people have come up with this idea. It's not mine originally. The machines somehow modify gravity. They are anti-gravity machines, and they know how to do that, but we don't. And so they probably get here from far away in unimaginably short times by our standards. And if you understand the theory of relativity, you also know that when you're traveling close to the speed of the light, a speed of light, time slows down so they're not aging as fast. And for all we know, they may have a natural lifespan of many, many, many more years than we do. So my, I have no knowledge about that. That's all theory or more speculation than theory. And your speculation might be just as good as mine because 
between interdimensional and intergalactic, I can't really choose. As a scientist uh, who works with evidence, what led you to conclude in your mind that the alien abduction experience is real, this is happening? Was there one incident? No, it was really simply the uh, accumulation of carefully evaluated evidence. Starting back in 1961 with the first good book on the subject, which was called Interrupted Journey, the story of Barney and Betty Hill. An unusual story. I don't know if I... If you know it, or if you're... Oh, yes. Okay. Kathleen Martin is their niece, correct? That's exactly right. So you're up right. on the... You're up in the field. That's right. That was the first account. There have been three or four other accounts, very competently written, which I've read. I've talked to most of the leading abduction researchers, and as I said, I've looked at their case studies, talked to them about their cases, about their, their techniques. I have one abductee in Montreal who's worked with me. And that's the extent of my clinical work, because as I said, I don't do clinical work. I'm also not qualified to do clinical work. I also, unfortunately, if you like, have a profession on the side. I still do a lot of consulting in my experimental psychology uh, cap, so to speak. So I'm a fairly busy guy. But uh, it's the accumulation of evidence, consistent evidence, the fact that at base, all scientific evidence is observational. And when somebody makes an observation about a close encounter, about missing time, and then the observation is filled in by flashbacks or by what you might call elicited evidence from a hypnotic induction or simply the passage of time, and that evidence presents a consistent picture, then we're dealing with the same kind of evidence that people have always used to develop new theories the kind of evidence Darwin collected on his voyage around the world to find out enough information about species to develop a theory of evolution. We are now in the process of realizing that there's enough information to give us a theory that there are intelligent species with technological advances over us living elsewhere, interdimensionally or otherwise, that are coming and, to put it in plain language, interfering with our lives, for better or worse. I'm convinced Don, on the basis of the evidence that those statements are true. Don, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us. I enjoyed meeting you. Hope we'll talk again. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.